not going to make myself a billionaire tomorrow, but, and I don't think I would have had the same, like, I don't think I would have made myself a billionaire sitting at a desk either. So when people ask me the takeaways are for the, for the six and a half years, is that things get good, things get bad. It's like any relationship you've ever been in, any job you've ever had. The more I get into this, maybe it's just me getting older as well. Nothing ever stops surprising you. Things like can just happen at the drop of a hat. Saturday night, there could be, you know, a literal fire to put out. Um, but there's also just like really good things that come of it. When you can make these decisions for yourself, it kind of forces you to mature faster and think more critically of your own actions, which I don't think is something I would have done if I had stayed behind a desk. On this episode of the Well-Fed Podcast, my guest is Zach Mack. He is a food and drink contributor at Thrillist Media, owner of Alphabet City Beer Company in East Village. He's a certified c- Cicerone. Cicerone, yeah, you Cicerone. got it. Cicerone. Cicerone. And just over the summer, uh, he went into his second year at Governor's Island with Governor's Beer Company. Yes, and a new place. Where was the new place? The new place is called Taco Vista. It's like right off of the boat. It's there you go. Not as much beer focused, but it's really good. Taco, taco game strong. Yeah. Um, so... Just to get it out of the way, what is a Cicerone? So Cicerone, which you actually did a better job pronouncing it for the first time than most people. The Cicerone, like Cicerone, so it's like pretty. Um, Cicerone is basically, for lack of a better term, uh, the beer equivalent of a sommelier. So it's an exam that you have to take to prove you know like everything from style, style history to pairing notes, beer production processes, things like that. Uh, a lot of food pairing is, is it really comes down to it, but. It's uh, it's become very popular in the last few years because up until recently we only had you know so much beer to drink and people started to realize that you could kind of do the beer thing with white tablecloth service so they stepped up the organization game and gave beer its own designation. So did you have to take like an official class or something? Yeah, I mean there's no classes. It's th- that's one of the most infuriating things about it. I love studying for exams and like preparing for stuff like that, but there's no roadmap that makes much sense for them. They just give out like this huge syllabus and. Um, give you like 15 to 20 books that you have to read. And then there's like a huge tasting portion of the exam, which is, you know, sort of subjective in certain cases because you're asked to pair with food. And there are basic things where you have to taste for for irregularities or for off flavors in the beer. And you have to buy these special kits to test it. And it's very expensive. So no classroom. It's just all on your own time. And there's a lot of people at this point who've taken it. So there's a lot of like war stories being traded and study guides that people have made up, but nothing official. So uh, in the past, rate used to be lower than like any of the 50 states bar exams or something like that. So I I don't know. I don't think that's the case anymore. Um, And they just added another level, another designation. But it's – yeah, I've had that for two, three years now. And it's helped me a lot as a writer um, because people see that. Like it's weird how much Americans are obsessed with titles. Like I – like you're an expert. You're officially an expert. There's nothing wrong with it with the title itself. Actually, coming up with it makes it a little easier to quantify what what you do. Mm-hmm. Like, because some people, you know, in this country, want to see that when they go to hire you to do something for them. But okay. um, I know guys who've been brewing for longer than I've been alive who know way more than I know about beer, and they won't ever take the Cicerone exam. <laughs> so it totally just depends on what you're doing, what what you're all about. You went to school in Montreal, and and I I just made the same mistake I'm sure as many do, and thought you grew up in Canada, but you actually you said you grew up in a small town in Boston. Yeah, I grew up uh, on the North Shore, just outside of Boston. So Swampscott, Salem, Marblehead, everyone. Where did you get the idea to go to school to, in Montreal? Uh, it's cheap. I just like <laughs> it. Cheap is also it's like one of the best schools in the world. I, like legitimately, it was like ranked 13th when I was there, and I didn't think I'd get in because it's very competitive, and um, but. 
I, my grades were good, I guess. I, I wanted to study international politics and French. And since as it is both technically, I mean, not technically, it's both international and a French-speaking city, it was kind of the perfect place. So um, it also saved me a fortune on my intuition. I'm like one of the few people I know who graduated without student debt. That's, so, that's pretty clutch. Yeah. And it's also Montreal. I mean, it's a freezing city in the winter, but it's still like one of the coolest places in North America. Did you learn how to speak French? Oh, yeah. I'm fluent. Oh. Yeah. I'm actually like certifiably fluent. Could you give us Could you give us a little... Oh, my God. I hate that. What do you want me to say? <laughs> <laughs> um, omelet, what is it? Omelette du fromage versus that cheese? I love cheese. Omelette du fromage? Je de fromage? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you studied economics political science, French language, literature, and did I miss anything on that? No, one? no, that was, uh, I was one of those like overambitious college <laughs> kids. I, we, I was legally required to take a certain number of courses and was uh, held back from taking more than a certain amount. So I, uh, I was there and like I said, I wanted to study French. So the McGill doesn't offer a lot of like the creative stuff on the side that even some of the more conservative uh liberal arts programs in the country in the u.s provide so i didn't have the option of taking like visual arts or anything sure. like that not that i had gone to school with any in, in, ambitions to do stuff like that i fancied myself a bit of a writer but i kind of got to put that into practice very writing rigorous curriculum up there yeah the you know i know you through friends but you know i i know that you write a lot you're a contributor on many websites that kind of sounds like a degree that rounds you off to to and and kind of points you in the direction to be a writer later on was that the intention so, i mean i didn't i don't think that came to me until halfway through but when i got to school i was like oh my god the opportunities like i wanted to be a meteorologist <laughs> i think i was the dead ass set on being a meteorologist That's for a while cool. or a geologist i was really into that then i switched over i was like no i want to go work for state department i want to be a diplomat and then halfway through that i realized that you know that's not exactly the career you like launch into out of college so I just realized that I was like, well, the writing thing is fun. I should start, maybe get a job in media because that's the sort of thing I can use that as an opportunity to kind of expand my practices of like gaining knowledge and, and seeing the world. I graduated from McGill and I moved right from Montreal to New York, basically. Yeah. So, and then that kind of changed a lot of things about that. And also the economy collapsed like less than a year after I graduated. So we're, we're segueing perfectly. Yeah. You're, leading, you're leading me up to it. So you, uh, did you have any family or friends when you moved here? Like you moved how long after graduation? I graduated in June and I was here by July. Wow. So I like, I remember I was like, I'll give myself, I was like in Boston, like, or in my, like trying to figure out if I was going to move back to Boston and it took me less than a week. I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. So I was on a, on a family vacation and on my way back home, I told my mom, I was like, mom, I think I'm going to go on a train to New York tonight. It sort of sounds like some stupid cliche, like Bruce Springsteen song or whatever, but <laughs> I actually jumped on the train. I had like 170 bucks in my bank account and I uh, was able to stay. I had no family here, but I had a, a really good friend of mine who I'd spent a summer living in England with and she had let me sleep on her couch for the entire summer before and she had offered the same thing. She's like, come and see if you can find a job in an apartment in like two weeks. And I found both in 10 days. So, so that's that's pretty. Uh, you were kind of just really determined at that point. Mm. Was it like the yes. fact that you just didn't want to go back to living with your parents? Or? Well, that was it. Well, yeah, that was a huge part of it. Not that I don't love my parents, but like I, was I know not that was ready my that was very much my motivation moving in. I was like, ah oh, man, they're making me do chores and stuff like that. I need yeah. to get out of here. It was part of it. Was that part of it was like having moved from the small towns that I grew up in to Montreal and realizing like, oh man, like there's so much more out there. Mm-hmm. And the time that I'd spent in New York the summer before, I was like, the bar had been set way too high for me to kind of slink back into doing something that I wasn't super interested in. So I was really motivated and kind of 
you know, typical 22 year old naive. And I was like, I can do New York. This is no problem. Rental just hat. Like I'll make, I'll make money. Even before the crash, it was like, you know, it was like a bit of a stretch for me, but I made it happen. I was lucky, lucky enough to run into the right people at the right time. And did, did you go, so did you, was that first job a writing position? Or yeah, I started off at this place called, uh, it was called eats.com, which eventually became delivery.com. But um, the uh, they hired me to do like write-ups of some restaurants and stuff around the city. And it was like one of the first things that had been offered to me that wasn't completely off the beaten path of what I wanted to do. So I took it, um, didn't pay very well. And I was like 22, like I said, starving and trying to figure out like how to make this job work. And I happened to be, so the roommate that I had at the time was someone I'd found through Craigslist who by sheer luck or by sheer fate happened to be from the same graduating class at McGill as, as I was, but didn't know him. I met him sending out a thing, an email on Craigslist or putting a, responding to his ad on Craigslist to help ends meet. I started waiting tables in a restaurant that he had just bought that we lived above as an Italian restaurant wine bar. And eventually when the economy collapsed and all the other job prospects I had dried up, that was what actually kept me in the city. But it was also what was teaching me about like service industry stuff. It was like a really interesting experience because he was a year older than me and he owned this restaurant and was opening this wine shop over here. And it kind of opened my eyes to the idea. I was like, you know, I moved to New York with the intention of working for other people my entire life. I assumed I would go into business or I'd go, I'd start a career working for other people. And then all of a sudden I started thinking, like, maybe I could do something for myself someday. But um, that would, that didn't last too, too long. I ended up getting a quick, had a quick stint of desk jobs that burned me out really fast. You kind of went right into writing about food and, and restaurants in, in New York and things not like entirely, that. Yeah. Not entirely by design though. Like the, the writing I was doing for them was, it was very much like, it wasn't advertorial, but it was it was not as polished as it like could be. This was like before writing about food had it really taken off on any kind of like digital. Like there wasn't the culture of writing about food and stuff online. This is two thousand seven, two thousand eight. So was Yelp around at that point? To the site that I was working for was like sort of kind of directly trying to compete with Yelp. That was okay. sort of like the the passionate thing. Like a lot of my friends treated Yelp very differently back then. I don't know if you remember that. Back then, people would take their like the reviews very seriously. I had, like a group of friends who was oh, like, all okay. about it. Yeah, like they would leave very distinct, yeah. detailed reviews in Yelp. Oh my god. I uh, I still I don't think I've ever left a review on Yelp. I go off the reviews, but I've never actually left one, and especially I have never left uh like an unsettling, like a disappointed. Oh review. man. No, that's that there's so much that I I very early on realized that Yelp is like the best and worst of things in the world, um, mostly because so many ill-informed or just angry people get a platform. Exactly. Um, the anger, you can always find the, the one or two star reviews that are just people that did not have a good day, even yeah. before getting to the place that they reviewed. Yeah, and you should, I think by now people should realize that that's the case. If you see these people calling out hosts by name or things like that, and they're like, they're clearly irate online yeah. like at this point we all understand what like an angry internet person sounds like oh, absolutely so, yeah i uh i don't know that this site was different though like i wasn't just writing those reviews i was like going around and like talking to restaurant owners I have like a bunch of like early day like playing your day out in new york like trips up and down a street and like trying different restaurants stuff like that but again it was not i didn't move to new york to be a food writer i just wanted to do anything writing related i remember applying for jobs 
at uh, Foreign Policy Magazine, of, like trying to see if I could get an internship with The Economist, like stuff like that. I mean, this is just what happened to come by first, and it sounded cool. You uh, you then went on to work for a few other media companies, yeah. Right, so I, I think on your LinkedIn it says you worked at Gawker. Yeah, was I just, it was it before it got sold? Well, before it got sold off? No, it didn't. Well, Gawker went sold under. Off, I'm sorry, killed off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. R.I.P. We need them now more than ever. <laughs> um, yeah, no, way before that. It was uh, that was 2010. That was like right as the, the economic collapse was like kind of right, like writing itself in the media world. I guess I had been doing weird freelance stuff, and that something popped up for an internship, and I just quickly on a fly shot off an email, and then they got back to me, and I ended up starting a video internship there, and meeting some of the people who've like changed my life the most in New York City, like just coworkers, some of some of my best friends, and met working there. It was an amazing place to be, like. It was a really crazy time for media. Things were really, like, old stuff was dying off and new stuff was coming up fast, and Gawker was kind of at the forefront of that. And I was such a tiny, tiny, insignificant part of it, but to be in the room when so much of the stuff was happening was surreal to me at the time. As someone who's a big fan of the website, but also just felt like you you could feel, like, all the things that were happening in the office were, you know, it was just really, really good time to be there as a young bootstrapping uh, like intern Cutting your teeth on, yeah. on on the work um you, you mentioned that like some of the friends that you made there have still been su- were were super influential yeah. on your life and you still stay in contact with them oh yeah and oh in what way did they kind of help you get your feet uh, your footing we were all like it's i we kind of joke around and call it like like a second version of college class or college friends because so so much of us came together at the same phase of life with the same set of interests we basically you know we we were working long hours and like doing interesting stuff and building something together but uh, to like to this point i've got friends who have met like some of our mutual friends even i met because i sat next to them during this internship or we worked together on stuff after that We've gotten each other jobs. Like I remember, like the first few jobs I had after Gawker were all through people I'd met through this yeah. opportunity. Yeah, everyone's just kind of looking out for each other. Yeah, and through them too. Like the people I met there, they're friends of friends and friends of friends of friends. And you go to any of these events, and now you know it's a New York media bubble too, I suppose. But like you get to, <laughs> they, I've been roommates with some of the people I worked with there. Uh, I've married a couple of them off. Like it's go. just like one of those things that. They just feel like college friends. Sure. So you went on from Gawker to work at Oyster, mm. which is a uh, it's a cool magazine. I actually, on. went to I had uh, the Webby Awards in between there. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, that's that, and worked with a couple of mutual friends of ours there as mm. well, um, and then jumped over to Oyster, which is you know the that's no longer independent product, but back then it was owned by Travel Channel, and we were doing like hotel reviews and travel writing and stuff. It was a lot of fun. That was the kind of last writing position you had. Before, that was the last test job I had. Yeah, before yeah. branching off and starting yep. what, what's today Alphabet City Beer Company. <laughs> yeah. what, at that point in your life, you know, what what was going through your mind? What made you? What led you to that decision? It, it was a lot. There was a bunch of things. I was looking around the, the landscape of media or where I could go tangentially from where I was at, and none of it looked really great. None of my friends were getting huge raises or huge job promotions without making massive lateral moves or leaving the city. And the job security thing was getting worse. So many of the places that I wanted to work two years later were, you know, laying off entire, like shutting down and laying off all their employees. And I just realized that I didn't want to have to worry about that. It's like a lot of time to invest to end up making no money and having no job security. So... And on top of that, I was just stressed out. I, like, I really didn't like my workload for the amount of money I was getting paid, but also just the way it was making me feel. Like, it just 
at the end of the day, I didn't feel as meaningful or fulfilling as I wanted it to. So I, uh, I always tell the story, but I was home visiting my sister in Boston and it was a Saturday at like 11 AM. And I just, I couldn't, I was already like coming to, to grips with my demons of like the, the Sunday scaries at like 11 AM on a Saturday. And, uh, my business partner, my now business partner called me and he was like, do you want to open up a beer store, beer bar thing? We had mentioned it years before. And I was like, you know what? Yeah. Like I knew he meant it. It wasn't one of those like half baked things. Like when he asks you to do something like that, he means it. So I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend like this is anymore. Like it's as risky for me to do this as it is to stay in the line of work I'm in. So and I was like, and if it all fails, I'll just go back. Yeah. I mean, at that point, I think you, you, you raise a really valid point, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. You know, it's like, Hey, you end up with a little bit more debt or something like that. Hey, you gotta yeah. go back and live with mom and dad. I mean, it's not like you're going to burn and fall into a ditch that you can't get out of. And right. <laughs> I mean, you, like you kiss everyone in this country is like, you're, everyone is so pro self-starter and like, go get them until you actually start signing that paperwork. And like, I had friends being like, so you're seriously going to do that? I'm like, yeah, I know I'm really going to do it. My parents, everyone, they're like, we're really supportive and I get it. But like, you really want to walk away from the security of a desk job? Like the same people yeah. that, you know, any day they do the same thing now. Totally do it. Yeah. I'm a graphic it's- designer and my parents are, uh, you know, t- when I tell them, I'm, I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about leaving, leaving my job. They're like, well, are you going to have healthcare? Are you? I was like, I might go freelance <laughs> for a healthcare. couple of months. It's like, <sighs> healthcare though. It's always what, healthcare. If, what if you break your arm? I'm like, mom, I, I literally use a laptop all day. I'm not like lifting anything. And it's just... Just like that, maybe I I think as we get older, you know, you and I will kind of understand and you know, looking forward to like the next generation of people that maybe that won't be such a heavy topic, but like it feels like my parents, your parents, all kind of have that same concern where like those are the biggest things. Yeah, and for, you know, rightly so. But I think you and I approach it. Sounds like we have to vote. <laughs> yeah, we approach it in a way that like we kind of face it head on. It's like yeah, I understand that, but I'm gonna make sure that. I'm doing all the right things to get me in a good position later on in a yeah. month, two months, three months. But I, I know I have to stick it out for that. We have to think more long-term and differently than I think our parents' generation did. That's the whole like angry millennial debate thing. It just makes me pissed off because so many people, they're like, oh, you, all you guys want to do is complain, but you can look at any any metric and see how different it is for our generation. And at that point, I wasn't thinking like this then, but now I look back and I realize it was, like, it was a good millennial move of me to go and try to cut it out on my own because I don't, I don't know. I didn't see as much joy in anyone's face by, you know, pretending to pledge loyalty to a company until they get laid off two to three years later. And, you know, this place, like this place has already seen through its bad, its worst days. We were five months old and we got wiped out in a hurricane, which is like the equivalent of, was that Sandy? That's Sandy. Yeah. Wow. Which, yeah, I've, I've talked to a lot of people about it and we got quoted up in God knows however many magazines and newspapers and stuff. But, as like a 27-year-old who just dropped every dime he ever had into a place. It was the most terrifying thing in the world. And it was super educational. And it made me realize, I was like, if I can figure this out and I can get through this somehow, then I can – this is easier than weathering someone else's storm. Like I – I mean literally in this case, made it through that, um, that storm. But like in this country, it's like this like this huge argument of like, yeah, what about your health care? There's no safety net for the people who want to take risks yet. And I feel – I feel like the lack of safety net is what stops everyone from just like cutting out on their own. And that's a good thing. It's like you realize when you get here, it's not as scary. Every single company, like your boss and the, you, every boss you've ever had or every company you've ever worked for started off as someone breaking off onto their own. Right. Yeah. So you have to think of it that way and realize that if no one ever cut out on their own, we'd all just end up working for 
Verizon or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which would suck. Your your business partner had just mentioned, hey, let's he wants to start a bar and, and he had yeah. mentioned this off, you know, in other conversations previously. Um, I, you went from writing to, to in media, having interest in, in being a politician of some sort, or getting yeah. into politics. Where does this connection for beer come in? Um, that, so beer, that's one of those things people always ask me like, so you were like born, like you like, you've been obsessed with beer yeah. your whole life. Like you your love parents, it. I was like, you must've been drinking it when you were young. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, going to school in Montreal helped because we could drink when we were 18 and they had a good beer culture. So I did get a little bit of a head start on learning things about beer that weren't like Natty Light in a basement, which mm-hmm. I'm very grateful for. They literally don't even have that kind of stuff in Canada. So but I was able to get a little bit of a head start, but like it wasn't something that was like – I wasn't majorly – like it didn't like consume my thoughts. I always – I was a very – just like I was with food and with wine and spirits at the time, I was very curious and wanted to learn more about it. I would order – every time I was out and saw something, I would order something – uh, I hadn't had before just to, to try some things out, but I hadn't, I didn't have any solid beer education. I learned all I could about wine because I was helping my roommate run his business over there. And it was, I mean, those curriculums existed. Back then, there was no real way to learn about beer other than scant blog posts online and a couple of books that had been written about Belgium. So for me, it was basically, basically the, the idea to open this place came up and then my curiosity about beer was necessitated to, to to deepen into like knowing what was going on. Like I knew what I liked and I knew how to talk about beer in a way to like we, we had learned from working and from running this Italian wine bar and my business partner's wine shop and liquor store two doors down from here on how to sell people stuff like in an informed and polite way, which is I think the most important thing um, is just not talking down to people when they're like already willing to give you their money don't make them feel like an idiot. So, sure. so you kind of saw it as an opportunity. It may not have been that you were like this all-out passionate guy about beer, but you had this, you know, you saw this opportunity to kind of present that that world, that industry in a way that made sense. Like the service aspect of yeah. it was a big part, and and kind of how you approach this and, and to better improve that. Yeah, uh, it was a lot. It was a lot of things too. It was 2012. This was right as like the craft industry like beer was jumping to something that had never been in this country or in the world so it was perfect timing not that we had designs or we had seen it this way but it was perfect timing on our part to start this because it it feels like everything had overdrive right around then so they needed more places like what we were providing to kind of explain and initiate people into a lot of this new beer stuff and we were willing to do it in a way that wasn't exclusive or demeaning or snobby that's not i mean we'd already been selling wine for years i we always said like we're young dudes selling wine and t-shirts like that's the sort of thing that we're going for the same vibe here beer is already one of those things that's demystified so it doesn't matter you know as much as wine but there was like a movement of people who were getting a little snobby about it and we kind of wanted to be the opposite of that so alphabet city is going into its its sixth year uh, we're halfway through six, almost or seven. Oh, you're almost seven in May, okay. so we're six and a half. So six and a half years yeah. old. Um, you know, you mentioned a little bit that five months in, you guys got hit with Sandy, and yeah. the place was flooded. Um, and I'm sure that was one of the one of maybe, if only not only, but like one of the very low points in the six years, six and a half years. You know, what have been what has been some of the takeaways for establishing a place like this you know what what have you looked back and realized if you had to tell someone starting a business like what would be the things that they should watch out for or be mindful of it's like it's 
funny because I get asked that a lot too. And it's a kind of a two-edged sword because I learned so much from going through something like Sandy early on and realizing that, you know, like I think if that had happened to us like five years in, I would have had a very different experience. But back then, this place was still so new that I was still just cutting my teeth on on my first experience in ownership. The advice that I give most people when I get asked this is just be completely sure that this is what you want to do because you're going to work harder than you did at your desk job. I worked twice as much as I did before. When I was miserable at my desk, though, it didn't feel the same. Now I may be physically exhausted at the end of certain weeks, but I know that this is something that I'm building for myself, and it makes me so much more motivated and makes me work more efficiently and in a different way than any other job I've ever had. Uh, And it's a lot of work, but it's the right kind of work in my eyes. I'm not going to make myself a billionaire tomorrow, but and I don't think I would have had the same... like. I don't think I would have made myself a billionaire sitting at a desk either. So when people ask me the takeaways are for the for the six and a half years, it's that things get good, things get bad. It's like any relationship you've ever been in, any job you've ever had. The more I get into this, maybe it's just me getting older as well. Nothing ever stops surprising you. Things like can just happen at the drop of a hat. Saturday night, there could be you know a literal fire to put out. Um, but there's also just like really good things that come of it. When you can make these decisions for yourself, it kind of forces you to mature faster and think more critically of your own actions, which I don't think is something I would have done if I had stayed behind a desk. So I tell everyone that get, be prepared to take more responsibility for your actions and to kind of own up to it for better or worse. You have to just, it's like you have to be more adult, you know? I mean, I was 27. I was completely, <laughs> I, at 27, I just became the owner of a beer bar. Like I was enjoying the hell out of that, obviously. Yeah. But I also had to be responsible enough i have i have employees and i have to make sure that this place is being run the right way at the end of the day this place only runs really well because i have great employees Mm -hmm. but that all just comes from like learning things along the way and realizing that it's never going to get super easy it's just going to get a little less confusing sure you guys were named uh, Time Out New York's most loved bar in New York City. Yes, which I think is uh, it's you know pretty pretty high up there in terms yeah. of uh, accol- <laughs> accolades. Um, and then you were also rated one of the top five craft beer bars by Brewdogs. Yes, you know, is there anything that you think uh, you know aside from starting your own business that attributed to being such a like a neighborhood favorite around here? I think part of it has... I've only ever lived in this neighborhood. So I think part of it has to do with both my business partner and I. He And same thing for him. He's never lived anywhere outside the East Village. I've never lived west of Avenue Way. Uh, so for me, this has been home since... For my entire adult life, young adult life. And even though we were just starting up something small, part of it was being aware of like where we were serving and the people around us and realizing that you have a first and foremost, you have a responsibility to the people around you in the community. And that was easy for us to feel because it had started when I was waiting tables over at Invino and, and when I was running that place and interacting with people who lived in the neighborhood on a daily basis, uh, you realize that this at the end of the day is what makes you different from visiting some big faceless corporation for a chain store is that these people come here and they get to know you and you have to respect that and respect the neighborhood. So I think that's really played into who we are. And even as we slowly grow out and do these different projects, like what we have on governor's Island and stuff, which doesn't have like literally has no neighborhood. People can't live out there. It still informs how you do business with people on a day-to-day basis and remembering that it's all about making people want to come back. So the, you know, you mentioned the governor's Island project. 
Um, that's two years in now. Yeah. Just about, just mm-hmm. about to finish the second year. What, where did that co- idea come from? We, that was just one of those things you get hounded when you open up a business like these people will hound you with opportunities to open up new spaces, like whether it's a new lease or something like that. Um, we got an email for, uh, an RFP for request for proposals out on governor's Island. They're looking for businesses to help develop the food scene out there. That was something like I, it was a crazy opportunity because they hadn't opened this up uh, in the years that the island has kind of slowly developed into like a food truck destination. So my business partner and I were like, well, we'll spitball, see if we can get something out of this. And we realized quickly that we were going to need help out there running a food program because it was just the odds were completely stacked against you. That island doesn't have any of the infrastructure you need to run uh, any kind of restaurant. So we, we contacted a few people who we thought would be a good fit. And the first person uh, we reached out to was Eddie uh, Froneider, who owns Eddie and the Wolf, a couple doors down from us. He's like a Michelin star chef, smart dude. And he, uh, he like quickly agreed to go into business with us, which was surprising to me because it seems something so different from what he does. He's got this amazing spot on Avenue C, but him saying yes kind of made it a possibility. And when we got accepted for the proposal, it kind of, it kind of took us all by surprise. So, Last year was our first year out there, and we learned a lot. Like, there's no running water. We had to figure out how to do a lot of basic things that restaurants are used to in, like, a completely remote setting. From, like, having to drive everything out there on the ferry. It's not like you can just run down to the store when you run out of something. So, it's a completely different operational experience on that island, but it's made me more aware of day-to-day things. It's been a long two years. The place we opened this year was it's a completely different concept. But it's been a lot of fun. Like every time you open up a business, I realize you learn more and more things, even if they're very similar in concept. Every process is like a new set of opportunities to learn, like how fucked up the legal system is, <laughs> or how crazy it is to get licensing done. You so, would think that it gets easier, but there's it's a, there's like few easier. steps. Few of the steps <laughs> may get easier, but then out of nowhere, there's always these curveballs that just hit you so hard that you never can really like adjust for, or practice for, never. Or I mean, there, yourself for in a way that this makes happens. Sense. To, it doesn't matter who you are in this. You could be. You could be Danny Meyer and you still run into operational hiccups when you're trying to open new places. It's just part of the course. It's just realizing you start learning what to do when things go wrong. And that's, I guess, just as important because if you're running a restaurant, nothing ever goes wrong. And then you're probably not running a very good restaurant or it's yeah. probably closed. Learn how to stand <laughs> on your toes longer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So while I have you here, I wanted to get into a little bit more nitty-gritty about beer and the backstory and, and what I should look for when I step into a store because I'm clueless. I'm a stout guy. I like dark beers because they have the chocolate kind of coffee notes. And the only reason why I found that out was because I went to – I took a trip to Ireland, super stereotypical. Um, but, you know, what are some of the other categories of beer? And, and you know, wh- wh- how do you – when you walk in, how do you kind of – determine which one you're looking for that's actually the one of the most fun parts about this plate is the when we were working in wine it winds around for centuries and there's like this really staid archaic system of like of wine regions and varietals that people think they know everything about and there's all this mysticism to it beer doesn't have that beer's got like the you know the the dad jeans and t-shirt vibe <laughs> and and even when we were starting and things were getting a little fancier even the, the fancy imported stuff it still had like a kind of button down look to it so you are in the rare like area of americans who actually like stark beer that's one thing in this country people are still afraid of everyone is always like oh i was like 
Well, I like it at times, though, too. I, you yeah, can't yeah. just drink a stout all day. No, no, of course. Well, it's I'm a very one of those people, people like, well, stouts are for wintertime and, and pilsners are for summer, but I'm one of those weirdos. I can drink stout in 110 degree weather. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, Guinness's second largest market is Jamaica, right? What? Yeah, they, like, they, they brew a special strong type that is like the most popular beer in the Caribbean. I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, so, so for most people, the only experience they get with dark beer in this country is Guinness on Nitro, which is great, but that's the only option that most people ever get. We're obsessed with IPAs and like pale lagers here. So a lot of the experience people have drinking beer is just like a fr- – it's like going out into the world and only ever having tried northern Italian food and then just trying to branch out into literally anything else. So – these days, I have people walk in the front door and they're saying, you know, I just don't, I don't like beer. I don't like craft beer. And it's usually because they're only exposed to things like IPA. Uh, or I'm like, not an IPA guy either. I I, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. Just because there's a ton of them doesn't mean that, you know, that's the right answer. Yeah. It's just because that flavor profile is so unique to a lot of, a lot of Americans drinking experiences and it's got so much flavor. And it's super bitter and floral that people gravitate towards them. But that's not the only thing out there. Now, because there's so many options on the shelf now, I can take anyone who walks in the door and find them. 99% of the time, I can find at least something, one thing you like. Whether it's a sour beer, which is like a huge new sector of beer in the last few years that has kind of opened up more opportunities for people to get into beer. Like people will try a Berliner Weiss or a Gosa for the first time and their eyes light up like, oh my God, I had no idea beer could taste like this. And it's a huge, that's, that means <laughs> like that's a, a conversion, a you know? Shop, an adult candy yeah, shop. That's exactly, well, I mean, I stand in front of my own fridges here. We have 450 SKUs on the shelf, all these cans and stuff and bottles ready to take home. And even I have a hard time <laughs> some nights trying to pick out what I want to take home. So it is like a candy shop. Uh, but it's great because a few years ago, that would have been only a handful of styles. And now... There's so much out there and it allows people to walk in free of judgment and drink whatever they want. And that means that at the end of the day, instead of going home and assuming that they're just a white wine drinker or just like this one segment of, of cocktail or spirit world, they can find something that they like. And uh, it's great to be able to help people find that stuff. Yeah. As I, I hesitate to ask, but the designer in me can't help it. And, you know, being a graphic designer, I walk into a store and I look at the cans and I'm so so judgeful ju- so judging of the label and the branding i'm sure it's wrong in a sense i've walked in before bought like a four pack purely because the illustrations on the camera are gorgeous of course but you're only human <laughs> is there is there anything i guess maybe the takeaway isn't to judge a book by its cover necessarily i mean we're only, like i said we're only human there's like so much that's happened in the last few years in beer and one of the huge ones was actual beautiful design and can work a lot of that comes from the fact that these dudes were in creative exploits before and are creative careers and when they left they were able to design their own beer labels so they've got guys some of my favorite dudes are like graduates or like from RISD or art schools from wherever. And they have some of those beautiful cans. And a lot of the times the beer inside those cans is great. Um, there's also some of the best beers you ever have have comic sans on the label. So, <laughs> but you're starting to realize now that or these brands are starting to realize now that the better their cans and bottles look, the more likely people are to pick them up. So I'm happy to see the design game get elevated. I'm someone who's never studied or worked in graphic design, but I've always appreciated it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to think I know decent design when I see it. So, And I can tell when I pick something up. I was like, I never pick up something that I wouldn't drink myself, but I can tell when something's going to move faster because of the way it looks. And 
that only helps the brewers and it also helps me. But uh, it's it's always too like if someone comes up with like a gimmicky name uh, and there's like good beer behind it, then it just makes it that much funnier and easier to sell. But I won't ever pick something up if it, if it sucks and it looks pretty. What's the point? Like I'll yeah. you know once I try it, I was like, yeah, I, I, if I don't if I wouldn't drink it or serve it to my friends, then I probably wouldn't put it on the shelf even if it looks really pretty. It's easy to kind of fall short on the product versus yeah. the actual design and look and feel of it. Yeah. Are there any kind of um, you, know, you mentioned you have a few beers that fly off the shelf because they look so good yeah are there could you mention you know could you detail some of those those brands or well, some of the ones that you think are just have a really good design there's a bunch i love grim is a very popular one there's one of my favorites yeah i'm gonna say time, the artist you probably appreciate oh, the labels i look i had a project i had a freelance project for uh, a small like microbrewery down south and Grim is like always the one I reference yeah. as I'm like this would be this is like a really good beer design like yeah. good idea really good kind of concept they're a perfect example of something where I would like take some of that label artwork and like frame that in my apartment it's so it's yeah. so nice that's a really and good point it's just beautiful beautiful looking artwork plus the stuff in the can in the bottle or whatever is fantastic as well everyone clamors over their their juicy ipas which are very very good but their sours are amazing their stouts are amazing and that's something that i was like well their attention to detail through and through there they're making beautiful art and like that's like a part of their message part of their expression it's uh it's just like like cooking and stuff now your aesthetic is as important as the stuff you're putting on the plate for a lot of people and that's not you know just you know instagram thirst trap stuff it's people actually <laughs> wanting to elevate the you know the experience and to stand out so um grim grim does that i think perfectly finback uh these guys out in queens um kevin and basil they're two of my favorite dudes they have beautiful beautiful they like even had like a special color blue uh wrapped around their kegs for so they that's, could easily nice like this like like beautifully vibrant powder blue but their cans are also beautifully designed Man, I can't even think off the top of my head. Stillwater has like he's done very simple but cool geometric designs on his cans, and they they really stand out to me. It's amazing how everything goes from minimal, which like some absurdly minimal stuff happens with beer now, uh, all the way up to incredibly complicated. This uh, there's a brewery called Flying Objects, which has very obscure or very very uh, avant garde artwork on their labels, and it makes it actually makes it kind of impossible to tell what you're looking at. Um, but people love it, so it's interesting for me to see how the artistic side of beer is like kind of is being explored by the people who buy it and people do appreciate when they're like especially if they're buying like if you're going to buy someone a gift i tell tell people you want the beer or the wine or whatever you're buying someone to taste good but it should look good too because people are going to take it more seriously so that makes it more likely for people to buy it if they're like giving it away so i want to switch over um from beer to uh to food because i think this is one of the parts I'm most excited about that I've learned uh, in the more recent weeks that you are a big ramen guy. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> I, I am so glad to have found someone that ha- also has a passion as, uh, as as much as I do. I, you know, on the off nights that I don't have dinner um, at my place or something like that, most... I mean, you cook a lot, right? I, I cook <laughs> a lot, but more likely I would always go for ramen if yeah. i like and I, i've you know started exploring a couple of places around the city i'm trying to be more you know daring and outgoing in terms of just not going to the same spot oh yeah all the time but um you know what are some of the favorite ramen spots that you frequent listen we're super lucky to live in a city in this yeah. country where we can have this this conversation because so many places don't have it. i realize when i travel i'm curious about this so i want to start by saying that we're very lucky in new york that we have this stuff that's this good it's, it really is like the most satisfying meal. Something I could never cook at home the right way just because it takes so long and it's like an art form yeah. that I, you know, 
as a white dude who has lived in the Northeast his entire life. Just like a completely foreign food culture that I just com- I deeply appreciate. The the I lived above Minka on Fifth Street between A and B, and. For what it's worth, I've never been anywhere else that has made me as happy as one of their bowls of ramen. They, there's like a lot of different ones around here that come close. Like I really like uh, I like Hidechan, which is up on like 52nd Street. They have a they're a great one. But I really like Mr. Taka. But I've been to Mr. Taka. Yeah, Mr. Taka is really good. I think and, I've been to Minka. I think I've ordered takeout from Minka. So I lived above Minka for five years, and their exhaust hood used to blow the smell of tonkatsu broth into my room, starting at like 9 a.m. every day. Nice. So I think I was indoctrinated into loving ramen even more. It's uh, it's honestly like if I have friends who've spent any time or lived in Japan, uh, they'll always say that Minka is the the best experience. It's that really? tiny little hole in the wall. I mean. You've, you've been there, right? Yeah. There's like 12 covers, if that. It's like a tiny-ass restaurant. There's always a line in front of it. So and good. it's so good. You know, there's a lot of other places around here that people... You know, there's like gimmicky places that kind of pop up that don't do as much for me. Like, I'm, I'm happy that it's expanding ramen as an idea to people. But I think a place like Minka has pretty much nailed it. I'm going to keep going there. What's the, the kind of one... Like, what's the first thing that you judge a bowl of ramen on? Oh, man. Well, it's for like... it's the broth. Well, yeah. Well, that's that's part of it is, like, you realize... And, and I didn't know this when I first started eating ramen. I just thought it was really hearty, delicious soup. But, like, there's different types, right? Like, you have the shio and the shoyu and, and then miso and different bases of broth that come from different parts of Japan. Or so I'm slowly realizing... Or, or slowly learning, rather. Uh, so... It depends on the mood. Like, I've had good versions of each type. So, my favorite, like, the, the one that Minka that I always get, the Minka Sio, is like a thick tonkatsu chicken, pork, garlic broth, which is pretty intense flavor-wise, but it's so... The texture of it is, like, unlike anything else I've ever... So much fat in the broth. It's, yeah. like, it's like a velvet glove sliding down your throat. <laughs> so good. But that's, like, if, I, if I'm thinking nine times out of ten when I'm craving ramen, that's the kind of thing I'm craving. But there's other ones, too, that bubble up every once in a while that I you know, I could go for, like, Sukeimen, which is, like, the dipping one. Or I could go for, like, Never the... Never had that. Oh, it's so good. Gotta try it. Minka's got a really good one. Or uh, have you ever been to um, Kokoron over on Kenmare? Mm. Oh, my God. They have really... They're, like, dipping soba noodles, too, but... Like legitimately great. I I'm kind of guilty of uh, when I don't have the ability to go to you know when I, when I haven't got my paycheck yet and I don't <laughs> I don't want to go and spend money at one of the rest you know one of the many great spots here in New York. I I am very guilty of getting the one dollar top ramen and trying to spice it up a little bit. So oh like my god! Add, you know like, the secret garlic. move? No, what do you do? The best move you got to take a slice of American cheese. What? I know it sounds so dumb, but if you want to create like a thicker broth at home, I thought. So remember the first time I read it. It was like in a New York Times article or something. And I, I thought it was just going to like glop up and be gross. But when you drop it in hot water, it actually just kind of dissolves, which is scary in a way. <laughs> but it turns the broth into like a really thick and savory, like it's an umami bomb. So I, whenever I cook it at home for my girlfriend or whatever, I will always, we talk about how our secret moves to drop the American cheese slice in. Is it like, would you suggest not a craft? American cheese slice. You, I mean, or... if that's what you got, it's it's American cheese. I, apparently, millennials are killing it as a as a food item, but or so I read. But the uh, there is the um, Highland Organic or whatever that one was like the the cartoon cow on the red package okay. that they make an organic American uh, slice of cheese, which I think is probably still not great for you. But <laughs> it, if you don't want to buy craft, you can buy that. And okay. every once in a while, I slip into buying those. 
So the, the quality doesn't necessarily yeah. matter. And then always scallions always work for it if you're dressing it up yeah. at home. Sesame scallions, seeds. Garlic. I, I have like a, garlic. a portfolio of sauces that I'll add. So it's like soy sauce into the broth. So yeah. you add the packet of flavor. Mm-hmm. And then it's soy sauce, teriyaki, hoisin. And if I have any like sesame oil chilling, yeah. I'll add that. Spicy ch- I always have spicy sesame, sesame oil. We uh, If I have it around, I like uh, ponzu for the side. You can add it to it or a little if you're wanting to do soy-based sauce. But there's I like I said if I'm cooking it at home it's usually out of desperation or <laughs> yeah. it's like raining out and I can't get out myself it's always I like when I cook ramen for myself but it's never the same as yeah. when you get to get out absolutely and, you know so what I, I did this once um, cooking it in so. I tried to do it in a faster way, obviously. <laughs> I didn't want to sit there. So, but you could, if you have a slow cooker, you can make the broth in yes. a slow cooker, and it works out really well. And I think to, I don't know how uh, credible this is, but it made me feel really good because uh, I took the broth out, I put it in a big bowl, so I had it for the rest of the week, and yeah. I put in a bunch of mason jars. So I was going to bring it to, you know, as lunch for work. And the mason jars overnight just all fr- like didn't freeze, but they all the broth coagulated. Congeals, so, yeah, yeah. yeah you like, really- <laughs> I was like, this must mean I'm really good at this. Yeah. This, must, this must be some good top notch broth here. And it was good. It turned yeah. out amazing. But like you know, I didn't really do it a, a complete justice. Like I got um, like the 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 super noodle from like Shoprite or whatever, where it's oh, yeah. like it's like I think the noodles are made out of seaweed, so they're oh, not like yeah, ramen yeah. noodles. <laughs> But, you know, it was, you know, I'm trying to throw it together. Well, you know what you can do? The, one of the best parts about making ramen at home now for me isn't, like, the dry ramen, like, the, there's, like, a new brand out right now that sells, like, a spicy one that I love for dry ramen. But pretty much 90% of what I've bought in the last few uh, purchases have been the sun noodles. You can buy them from Whole Foods now. So you can get the fresh noodles. They're not, obviously, you can't keep them in the back of your cabinet. Sure, like, you can, yeah. like, top ramen. You need to eat them kind but, of immediately. Yeah, I think the shelf life is, like, a solid two and a half weeks. I've held them for longer, but <laughs> it's there. It's so good to have it because it totally changes the experience. So if you have a little bit of foresight and you go out and buy one of those and have that tucked in your fridge, I will need to do that. Yeah, I need to look that. It's up. a good move. So what is uh, what is on the horizon for Zach Mac ABC Beer Governors Beer Company? Oh my God! Right now, we like we're wrapping up for the summer on Governors, which will give me a little more free time. Now, right now, my weekends are dominated by getting out there and just making sure things go okay. Yeah, you took the but, eight o'clock ferry. Or you yeah. missed the eight, and then you had to take the eight thirty. I'm so tired. I was out late last night. Woke up, drove out there and back, and now we're doing this. Yeah. Um, and when that ends in a week, it will free up my time to kind of think about what we want to do for this place this year. Winter is a very, uh, fall and winter are very busy here. So it'll keep my hands full, but you know, I have, I still do the freelance writing stuff. So like I'm doing stuff for Thrillist. Um, I'm pitching stuff around and you know, hopefully this winter will give me a little more time to focus on stuff like that. Maybe expand on that, but who knows? Every time I've like thought that I was going to have like a quiet couple of months, something falls in my lap. So I've like that the runway for Governor's Island stuff happened over the span of like two two months, two and a half months. So who knows? In a week, my entire outlook on what my winter, fall, winter, and spring are going to look like could be very different than what I am right now. So there might be totally yeah. new governors, but for the winter season, exactly. I'm always open to whatever comes my way, and so we'll see. Who knows what. Who knows what it means this year? Sure. Well, thank you, Zach. I appreciate you taking the time today. And, thank you. Um, if where where can people find you? Uh, on social media. Social media. Social media internet, um, anywhere physically. Physically, in, in you IRL. can find me on uh, at, at ABC Beer Co on Avenue C, uh, between sixth and seventh. 
My, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm ZMac, Z-M-A-C-K. And this place is ABC Beer Co. Um, and then there's also Governor's Beer Co. and Taco Vista NYC. So check them all out. <laughs> Thank you, Zach. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Well Fed. This podcast is produced by me, John Sarantino, out in Jersey City, New Jersey, and made possible by all the amazing people that agree to be my guests on this thing. Music is also provided by my friend Kevin Bendis out in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. If you have any suggestions or ideas for people that you'd like to hear from, go ahead and DM them to me on Instagram at wellfed.us. If you like listening, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or you can also go to the website wellfed.us for more episodes. Again, thank you so much for listening. Bye!